And so I'm really delighted to have Sheila here speaking. She's spoken at an event, Barry and I organized in Geneva in January, and it's great to have her back. Um, so Sheila is a senior lecturer in the School of Law at the University of Bristol, and her research is in the fields of health law, law and reproduction, and law and gender. And she's going to speak to us today about the experience of women in Northern Ireland traveling to England to access abortion care, so the stigma and shame around abortion. Okay, so I'm going to speak to you today about some research I'm undertaking with Mary Fox, who's a professor at the University of Birmingham. Um, and what we're doing is looking into the experiences of women in Northern Ireland who are travelling to access abortion services. Um, the study we're undertaking is empirical in that there's a survey element and then also interviews. But it's not meant to be across the board representative. What we're trying to do is elicit narratives from women about their experiences and see how that fits some existing frames around um, access to abortion services. And in particular, we're drawing on Marcia Norn's account of reproductive exile and see how this fits in the abortion case with regard to women in Northern Ireland. So this first stage is an online survey, which is still ongoing. So if you know anyone um, who fits the criteria, who has travelled from Northern Ireland to England to access abortion services, please tell them to come and fill in the survey if they are willing. And um, the survey will finish at the end of October, and then early in the new year, we hope to undertake interviews with um, the women who have completed the surveys and have consented to be interviewed. And um, the key things that we were looking into were uh, the impact of travelling to access services and um, funding restrictions. And the reason for that is the trigger for us to, begin to look at this was the case of A and B versus Secretary of State for Health, which I'll speak about in a little bit more detail um, later in the presentation. But two of the key issues in that case, it's a, woman who's a, a teenage girl who has to travel to access service and then has to pay in England, because women in Northern Ireland aren't just, um, don't face just legal restrictions in Northern Ireland. If they travel to the other parts of the UK, they can't access NHS services. Um, so they have access services privately. Okay, but the starting point for our inquiry is the understanding of abortion as a social fact. So the idea that abortion just has always existed. There are many, many accounts of it historically. And women would take very, cl very clear steps to access services. So women are pregnant and don't want to be. And there's a long history of them taking steps that include endangering their own lives in order to access service. Um, a graphic example of this, so the 11th of October marked the anniversary of Rowan Wade and New York Magazine ran um, stories from clinicians who provided both pre and post Roe, so the first abortion providers was the title of the story. And one woman recounted a teenager um, who appeared for a service in 1966, this is when um, her, her procedure took place. And at the end of the procedure, the young girl turned to her and said, so when, when, when do you get the ball? And she said, what, what are you talking about? And she said, the ball, they told me you'd put a ball inside my uterus with spikes on it and spin it around. And that's what the procedure would take. And she's looking at this girl and she's saying, imagine, like, imagine being in a position that you think that's what's ahead of you, but you're still prepared to take that step to access service. So that's the idea of abortion as a social fact and something that women do access. Um, and, will, and will endanger their own lives to access. So this is from Greenwood and Young, but there are other surveys that detail, or other studies that detail the range of ways in which women have um, endangered their own health and lives in order to access abortion services. So what is the current reality of abortion in Northern Ireland? If you're pregnant in Northern Ireland and don't want to be, 
and are in the position to do so you can travel but of course there are many women who won't be able to travel for reasons of funding because they don't have visas they don't have passports they may have existing children that they can't arrange an alternative care for there are many reasons um, why you mightn't be able to travel so if you can't travel you either continue with the pregnancy so this is where we get this um a campaigning discourse of like that parenting should be parenting by choice rather than parenting by being forced or you can access services online. So you can go to womenhealth.org or Women on Waves and you can order abortion pills online and um, there's evidence of that happening. So that's the current reality of abortion in Northern Ireland. And we're, we're interested in the group here who are traveling. So the women who are traveling primarily to England to access services. Um, abortion in Northern Ireland has been subject to sustained and intense criticism of late. So um, Audrey, Simpson has recently stepped down as director of the Family Planning Association and was reflecting on her experience and the changes in the discourses. And um, she was reflecting how in the, in the last few years, in the last kind of three to five years in particular, there has been a hugely increased and sustained and joined up campaign that's criticising um, Northern Ireland abortion laws. So first of all, highlighting the fact that abortion is illegal in Northern Ireland. I teach in um, law school in Bristol, I've taught in other law schools in the UK. Um, it, it's surprising how often students don't realise that abortion is in Northern Ireland. These are law students and they just don't realise that abortion in Northern Ireland is um, so restricted. But the Human Rights Committee, Amnesty International has just launched a report, all of them highlighting that uh, the law in Northern Ireland is not human rights compliant. So it doesn't even contain the bare minimum to be human rights compliant at present. Um, so what is the state of law? I'm not sure how familiar you are, so I'll briefly go through it. The Offence Against the Press Act, 1861, is still good law, and it criminalises um, intention to procure a miscarriage or to self-abort or to assist in an abortion. Uh, the Criminal Justice Act is like a mirror of the Infant Life Preservation Act, so it makes a crime uh, to, to destroy of, of child destruction, so a child capable of being born alive, but has an exception where the life or health of the mother is endangered, or pregnant woman is endangered. And then we have some litigation in the early 90s in Northern Ireland that uh, where the courts accept the adoption of what are called Bourne principles. So the Bourne case, for those of you who aren't familiar, is a case that occurred in 1938. Alec Bourne is a very prominent obstetrician gynaecologist. He performs an abortion on a teenager who is pregnant following uh, gang rape, and he is prosecuted and acquitted on the basis that they read into the 1861 Act an exception that's found in the Infant Life Preservation Act. So they read into the Act the fact that there must be a category of lawful abortions where the life of the pregnant woman is endangered and broaden the, the danger to include uh, dangers to physical or mental health. So they broaden it, broaden it out and they, these cases in the early 1990s in Northern Ireland accept that. So it's, abortion is now supposedly available, or it is at least permissible in situations where a woman's life or health is threatened. Um, but obviously it's very clear that it's not easily accessible, it's not clear what pathways you go to access it. So the trans, uh, Transitional Justice Institute in Ulster has done a very extensive report on, um, on the law on abortion, and here are some of their key findings. So that it's highly restrictive, um, it's very difficult to access, it's unclear, women are usually unclear, um, and the threshold is high is essentially the key findings. So there are some findings in their report, but this has been uh, detailed in other reports as well. So in this case, Secretary, um, AMB and Secretary of State for Health, this case involves um, a judicial review action 
of the decision not to fund abortions in Northern Ireland. And it was this case that got us interested in the two issues of travel and payment. So in this case, a 15-year-old girl is pregnant and wishes to have a termination, and her mother um, brings her to England in order to access services where they pay for them. Um, in, they challenged the decision not to fund these services, so the Secretary of State's decision not to fund them. So for those of you who aren't familiar, funding allocation of resources in the United Kingdom is quite regional, and trusts will pay for the healthcare of people who are ordinarily resident in that trust, and of course these people aren't ordinarily resident in the place where they went to access the service. Um, and basically they, they challenged the decision, and their challenge is ultimately unsuccessful. So it's, and the reason they're challenging the Secretary, of State's, um, the Secretary of State's decision here is the Secretary of State could make an exception for ca in cases of emergency. So for instance, if you're in a car accident in an area, um, you're entitled to emergency health treatment, right? And it's covered. And he sees abortion as being a non-emergency resource, um, non-emergency, um, which I think is a problematic char characterization. And it shows kind of how uneasily abortion sits with medical services generally. So I'll talk in a minute about the impact of travelling and how funding and travel kind of just play off each other to make the situation very difficult for women. But in travelling, um, th there is a lot of literature, existing literature on abortion, um, on travelling to access abortion services. So Seth and Dool in the Canadian context have talked as women as accidental tourists, so they travel to access services. Um, and lots of women will travel even if services are available more, near, you know, more closely. So I'm not saying the only reason women travel is because of legal restrictions, but it's certainly a huge reason. And Rossiter has written about the situation of women travelling to the Republic of Ireland and England. And she describes it as the abortion trail where they join part of Ireland's hidden diaspora. So there's a large community of women in this situation. Um, and you become a member of the community in travelling. So Inhorn, and she's speaking in the context of assisted reproduction, talks about uh, reproductive exile. So she says we need to move away from the language of tourism because it's not reflective of the experiences of people who are travelling to access, and in her case, um, fertility services. So she says we should use the language of exile instead because it, it highlights the difficulties that these individuals who are forced, so they're not choosing to travel, um, and we want to see how this model fits with women who are forced to travel to access abortion services. So some of the features that do, um, some of the features that travel across cases or that work in each case. So for instance, there's a sense of alienation from home or friends, family or state in travel. And then in the case of um, having to pay for women in Northern Ireland, one thing that's come out, and again I'll detail it, is how unfair this is felt to be. So that they are, they are, they are, they, they are from the UK. So why do they have to pay? They they pay taxes that contribute to the National Health Service. So there's a real sense of injustice, and it's one of the prominent themes in the in the responses we've had. Um, this is the Abortion Support Network, who are a great organisation that have been set up specifically to help women travel from Ireland uh, to England in order to access abortion services. And indeed, ultimately, the mother in the case of AMB contacts the Abortion Support Network um, and they provide them with some funding to support um, her ability to travel. But Mark Clark, who's the chairperson of um, ASN, has described them as a very bespoke travel agency, right? So they just they cater for women in these situations. So these narratives of travel and tourism um, filter through all the discussion of this pathway. 
So in the responses we've gathered to date, um, the, the first thing that's very clear is the language of being forced. So in all of the responses, people feel forced to travel. So there's a certainty about the decision. Many of them open in their responses that they were certain they would have a termination, but it was being forced to travel. So they, they don't see it as a choice to travel. They see it as something they were forced to do. And in being forced to travel, they're forced to leave family and friends behind. And that impacts on their experience of care and on, on their experience of this situation. So many comments are, it would have been better if I could have had my family or friends around me. So that's a common response, that I didn't have family or friends or support around me. I had to go somewhere different. The lack of familiarity is a clear narrative that plays out. Now what's interesting and one of the things we plan to look at further in the interviews is there's a tension here between the sense of I had to leave my family and friends, but also the fact that most of the people who've responded have kept this a secret. So they haven't told their family or friends. So there's something, there's a sense here in which there's a presumption that if they could have accessed services more locally, there would have been some level of legitimacy or acceptance of that decision. Whereas we know that's not necessarily the case, right? Like the acceptance of abortion doesn't happen hand in hand with the legality of abortion. So we see that in many countries. So one thing we want to examine further in the next stage is this tension that exists between the perception of being um, separated from your family but the decision not to tell as well. So would you have told? Are you more likely to tell if you don't have to travel? The other thing that, um, that is the most common word used in the surveys is terrifying. So that's the most common word in the survey responses we've collected so far. So finding out they were pregnant is terrifying, arranging travel is terrifying, returning is terrifying, not knowing who you can tell is terrifying, not being able to have appropriate follow-up care. So that's the most common word that features throughout our responses, um, and it's a very strong theme in the responses so far. Okay, so the next thing then is the funding issue, because we specifically asked them about travel and we specifically asked them about funding. And this is to test out this kind of account that we have described as the abortion financial spiral. And it's the interplay between the fact that the longer it takes to get money to have a termination, the further the pregnancy progresses. The further a pregnancy progresses, the more expensive the procedure is, right? So you end up in this spiral. And in the A and B case, the mother of um, the mother in that situation describes the experience of having to save to access to travel to pay for the procedure as harrowing. So it, 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 that they, they are constantly aware. They cut back on many basic basic needs in order to fund this travel. So they you know they are they are eating very restricted diets of beans and toast for weeks in order to save money in order to travel to access this. So that is something that has come out in the responses. Some people have said we were lucky, we, were, we, we have been able to pay for this without huge um, impact, but many people, particularly those who have been, we specifically sent um, the survey out to people who had, who had access services through the Abortion Support Network. They allowed us to email, what well, they emailed for us, some of the people in their database who had agreed to be recontacted. And for those people, they, the funding is a huge issue. So there's people who, in addition to having support of ASN, also have borrowed money um, from various sources or have gone into overdrafts or credit cards. So that finance is a huge issue. And there's a mixed understanding about why um, abortion isn't paid for under the NHS. 
So while many were aware, most, almost everyone who responded was aware that abortion was legally restricted in Northern Ireland prior to finding themselves pregnant, not everybody was aware they would have to pay. So there's a huge level of confusion, not a huge level, but like clear evidence of confusion and of the reason for that. So for instance, a couple of respondents have thought that the reason they have to pay is a hangover from laws in the Republic, right? So it's somehow an impact of the laws in the Republic that are impacting on their ability to access service. So there's confusion about what's going on. Um, many of the women knew there were some restrictions, but presumed there were exceptions. So they say, I knew that, that you have to pay, but I thought in my case it would be different. Um, and this is this in the responses that we have, and again, it's not representative. It's, um, they, they have been women who travel to access abortion for medical reasons or reasons of fetal anomalies, so they presume there will be an exception in their case. So they're, they're the themes we're examining. But on this issue of shame and stigma, so I have a more general interest in shame and stigma as um, applies to abortion services. And I'm going to take a little uh, detour here to talk about abortion provision, so from the perspective of doctors. So when I talked very first about what I might present, um, I, was, I was quite keen to do it from the perspective of providers because I've been interested in this idea of abortion as an example of dirty work. So this is a theory from Everett Hughes who describes dirty work as being aspects of, a aspects of professional work that are avoided or cumbersome and inv involve moral taint. So they're dirty, so they can be physically, socially or morally beneath the dignity of the profession. And in some other work I've done, there's very clear evidence of this in relation to abortion work. So for instance, Lisa Harris in the US has talked about the danger talk of abortion. So abortion exists as dirty work. Abortion providers are not to be trusted. They are, after all, former criminals if they provided abortion at the time when it was illegal. And a general sense of distrust often with providers. Um, and, but the problem is you can't talk about that, right? Because providers aren't given spaces to talk about their experience and the fact that some aspects of the work may be aesthetically really unpleasant, right? Like there are, in the same way that any aspect of medical practice, I don't know, I'm not a medic, but there must be aspects that aren't particularly nice. But what comes with abortion is the danger talk, the, the, the fear that if you do talk about the negative aspects of it, you feed into a broader anti-abortion agenda. And so there's some interesting work from the perspective of providers, and this is picked up in the title of Gabrielle Weston's book, um, this is a fictional account of a doctor who provides abortions in England. And no one ever talks to her about why she chooses to provide. You know, it just, it's something that happens, it's the evolution of her career, it's not a conscious choice. And the first time it ever becomes an issue is when she's held before the GMC. And that's the first time anyone ever asks her questions about why she consciously chose, um, chose this, this work. Um, Susan Wickland, who's an abor abortion provider in the US, has described abortion as a common secret. So we are reliant on abortion and abortion providers work, but we don't want to acknowledge it or talk about it. So she talks about, you know, it's not dinner party talk. If someone asks you what job you have, you're not likely to start talking about being an abortion provider. And there's some work in, in the U UK on this, but it's limited. <coughs> so going back then to, um, to abortion and stigma. There's a huge literature on abortion stigma and how it's conceptualized, so people like Kumar, I've written in great detail about abortion stigma 
abortion as a stigmatised procedure, the decision to have an abortion as a, a stigmatised procedure, and even mantras like free, safe, legal and rare, right? Like it has to be rare, so abortion is something that is to be avoided. Abortion exists as an acknowledgement of failure, right? You didn't use contraception appropriately, so abortion becomes a form of uh, failure. So there's a lot of literature on this, acknowledging abortion stigma. And then lately, there's the opposite trying to happen. So to own abortion, right, re-own it, put a face to the procedure. So things like Shout Your Abortion is a recent campaign by Lindy West <coughs> on Twitter, where people describe having a termination with the hashtag Shout Your Abortion, in this idea that abortion is just really common, right? So to get it as being accepted. Because there is a tension in the fact that abortion is just a very common procedure. Lots of women would have terminations at uh, different stages in their life. So why this stigma and shame around it? Like, it's very uh, normal and we should talk about it as such. And Carol Sanger has suggested that if we can get more people to talk about it, to be a face for abortion, and there'll be a trickle-up effect, right? So more people will talk about it and that'll lead to law reform, because there'll be more liberalisation. And as more people talk about it, it becomes more accepted and it's rolled into one. Um, whether that would be, and then you have things like the one in three campaign, there's lots of campaigns that are about telling your abortion story, putting a face to abortion provision. But notwithstanding these efforts to re-own abortion, people like Tara Flynn speaking in the press or Roshan Ingle, it's still something that's about to be stigmatised or secret of some sort. So, and this is certainly something that's evidenced in the responses that we had. So people didn't largely, um, I think actually for one exception, people only told one friend, or a partner or a parent. So like one other person was, it seemed to be just a common thing. I told one person and it was X. It seems to have been a, a common response. Um, another thing that comes out in this stigma and stigmatization, stigmatization of certain sorts of abortions, so abortion for, for particular reasons, and that there's a hierarchy of reasons. So there are good, good abortions, there are good reasons to have it, and then there are the other kind. Um, so, Commonly in campaigns, it's seen as abortion for reasons of fetal anomaly, rape, incest, threats to health and threats to life are good reasons, and then you avoid discussing the more mundane cases of where women just don't want to be pregnant, right? Like that's their reason for having a termination. And that certainly comes out in some of the surveys where um, their they decision to have a termination is qualified. Like, I am not pro-abortion. My case is different. It's a particular sort of difference. And this fits with broader hierarchies of reasons for having an abortion. Um, there's in abortion literature, there's this idea of double discourses. So that's where politicians will often say, personally, I'm opposed, but I think it should be legal, right? So like double talk and double discourses. And that comes out. So I'm not pro-abortion, but I made this decision. Another form of double discourse, and um, Fiona Glimmer has written, recently written about this in relation to um, abortion in both the Republic and Northern Ireland, is the double discourse of social public social conservatism and um, condemning abortion with a private acceptance or facilitation of illicit abortions. So this is where you get a public, like, no, this is terrible, but in fact we will facilitate illicit services. And that certainly comes out uh, a little bit as well, but is a broader issue, I think, related. 
The final way, the final way in which stigma and shame is just huge here is the impact of criminalisation. So you're talking about the criminal law here, that's what regulates abortion in Northern Ireland, and that certainly is, has a stigmatising, um, uh, is stigmatising, and many women feel it's stigmatising. So they, they, they feel stigmatised by the fact they are a criminal, right? So in, in doing this, they are acting criminally. And um, so yeah, Amnesty have the not criminal ha hashtag, right? So that women in these positions shouldn't be a criminal. And this also then impacts on the profession. So doctors being scared of being criminals. So we have seen time and again reference made to the chilling effect of um, the criminal law in this area on practice. So it, it, it kind of encourages conservatism or discourages provision of service. And then I also want to link back to the earlier point about this distrust of providers. So there's lots of evidence of distrust of providers. Cara Joffe uh, has a lovely book called Doctors of Conscience about doctors who provide both pre and post wage. And they all talk about the sense of distrust their peers treated them with, right? Because they were kind of doing something a bit dodgy. Um, and related to that, illegal, right? They were undertaking illegal activity. In um, a BPAS, got to, had a witness, or there was a witness seminar, and BPAS has subsequently um, published an account of this of those involved in the abortion law reform. Uh, association and the Campaign for the Abortion Act. And again, we get this distrust of providers. So Malcolm Potts talks about why he was picked to be a kind of figurehead for the Abortion Law Reform Association. And one of the reasons is because he couldn't be tainted with previous provision. And in particular, he couldn't be tainted as someone who had provided for money. So he's a very recent graduate, very young, and they pick him because he isn't associated with provision. And then he talks about people um, who have provided have much more experience of being sidelined because they were treated with distrust because of the decisions they had made. So, so criminal law here does have a stigmatising effect both on women and on clinicians. And of course it's not that it's criminal law applied equally, right? It's target of prosecution. So we have a situation at the minute where a woman is being prosecuted for procuring drugs online for her teenage daughter. And when you think about how this is described, and they, this is a headline from The Telegraph, which is very, um, The Telegraph story is very supportive of this woman. But if you look at some of the words here, so she's accused of supplying poison to her daughter. Like that's, that's a, a kind of very, yeah, that, I think that's obviously stigmatizing, but it's a selective prosecution. So 203 people signed a letter saying we ourselves have taken abortion drugs or gotten them for friends. They haven't been prosecuted, right? So this selective prosecution, that different people can be more vulnerable um, to prosecution in this area is problematic. And I don't have time to talk about the Department of Justice consultation, except to say that it's kind of disappointing, perhaps unsurprisingly so. So concluding thoughts then are where we hope to go with this. Well, one is, um, to going back to Inhorn, and this is, I guess, the frame for our analysis, is that abortion, kind of sex equality arguments for abortion, right? So if women are to be equal to men and have to enjoy full prospects of citizenship, they must be able to control the time and number of their children. So a very basic sex equality argument for abortion. And exile seems to work as a frame for us in that way because it talks about the restrictions on your citizenship, your alienation from the state or from a nation. Um, and this again fits with a lot of the, the NGO criticisms that acknowledge basic reproductive rights is necessary for all and restricting access to abortion is restricting access to a basic reproductive right. But also that things are changing. So in Simpson's reflection, she talks about the wall, on the, the abortion wall that blocks women from accessing um, 
uh, the walls of silence um, around abortion in Northern Ireland. But she says it's changing. So she said it's like the Berlin Wall. It won't come down overnight, but the bricks are slowly crumbling. Um, and that's her reflection of her rat. And hopefully that is the case. So future questions that we want to look at. Um, I've just given you this picture. It's by Carla Rossetti. She has a range of um, drawings that are fantastic across all the topics we've discussed today. So if you want like pictures for your work, she looks at many areas in which women are stigmatised and oppressed and has really great posters. Um, I'm very excited because this one just arrived for me to put up in my office. Um, but what the things we want to look at more are this, this tension between I, I didn't tell, but I'm also removed. So we want to hear more about that. For the women who, that, this idea of unfairness or how, that it impacts on their citizenship, and this is particularly linked with the NHS, right? Like we should be entitled to care under the NHS. But also maybe this is like all coming too late anyway. So with more access to early medical abortions, maybe law reform isn't going to be that important. Um, and there's increased discussion of you know, alternative modes of resistance to restrictive abortion laws. So maybe um, you know, e easy access to early medical abortions is going to be the way forward. So we want to discuss with women whether they considered accessing abortion drugs online or why it was they chose travel. And again, this could be whether they knew about it or not. So that's it. Thank <laughs> you.